the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the Gospel of John. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. The manna part is a physical illustration, but he being the bread of life is the spiritual application of what it means to be totally consumed with who Jesus is and thereby dying to self, having relationship with him and feeding on him, so to speak, as if your very soul survival depended on that relationship with him, because it does. So he's challenging the people of his day, he's challenging all of us to that relationship with him. Have you ever wondered what communion was all about? It's a practice in the church that reminds believers of what Jesus has done for us. Pastor Gary today will talk about what it means to eat bread and drink juice or wine and what it has to do with our Savior. This practice doesn't make us more holy, and it certainly isn't to be saved from sin. It's simply a reminder that Jesus gave his life for us and that we get to be part of his family if we accept this free gift of grace. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of John, chapter 6, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. There's a tension here in the words of Jesus, and the tension is intended to stay intact. And the problem is that a lot of times, good-minded, good-willed Christians get together and they want to parse out these words and they want to make whole arguments about were you chosen or did you exercise your free will to come to God? Because Jesus uses terms interchangeably in that section I just read from verse 35 down through verse 40. You'll notice with me in verse 37, he talks about all that the Father gives me will come to me. And see, those those who are persuaded that, you know, the only people who get saved are the ones that God predetermines to be saved, will point to that verse and say, see, God's predetermined some people and it's only the ones that God gives to Jesus. And he repeats that phrase in verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. Okay? You can make an argument if you want to just pull those couple of phrases out of that passage. But then it's equally challenging, however, to look at within the same paragraph, Jesus speaks about and addresses the exercise of the human free will at the same time. Because he uses phrases like, whoever comes to me. Verse 35, Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life, he who comes to me. And the rest of verse 35, and he who believes in me. In verse 37, right after he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, then he says, and whoever comes to me. Wait a minute, I thought it was only the ones that you were given. And then Jesus adds, and whoever. Whoever is a pretty broad term. 
And then he also says it further down in verse 40. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up to the last days. Not an exclusive few, but everyone, whosoever. So you look at at all that Jesus says there, and he talks about those that the father has given him. But he also talks about whoever comes. So which is it? Is it only those that the Father gives or those who ever comes? Are we predetermined, predestined, and chosen according only to the will of God and no exercise of human free will? Or is it all about the human free will and the exercise of free will and believing in Jesus? The answer to those questions is yes. That's right. It's yes. It's both of the, it's all of that. The tension is kept intact. Okay? You can't dismiss the sovereignty of God, but neither can you dismiss the free will of humanity that he's given us. Does he know in advance all those who will choose him? Of course he does, because he knows all things. Does that mean that he necessarily picks and chooses, like, you know, pulling the petals off of a daisy? This one, yes. This one, not. This one, yes. This one, not. No. It is not predetermined in that way, because then it would be a violation of the very free will that he's given us. So his foreknowledge about all things does not preclude some people to a select small group of people that he's predetermined. So we have to make room for the discussion. There's great debate about it, and I could go on and on about this. It's, you know, when we do our Q&A weekend, usually at the end of the year, this is the, this is the number one question I constantly get. You know, or what's your take on predestination? What's your take on free will? What's your take on the sovereignty of God versus the exercise of human free will? And, and I don't say this to, you know, try to, appease both groups. I just say this honestly because when you look at the full counsel of Scripture, you can make an argument separately for either one, but you shouldn't get stuck in one camp on the extreme. You should realize that it's somewhere in the middle is God's sovereignty and man's free will and the exercise of those things work in concert, not exclusively, but in concert together. Jesus says it here. On the one hand, he says, those the Father gives me. On the next hand, he says, everyone who wills. So we need to keep that tension intact as well. As well. Now, what I want to, what I want to point out to you, however, before we keep reading, because it's going to get dicier here with some of the stuff that Jesus says, is that Jesus is going to draw a comparison here between manna in the days of Moses and the bread of life that he is. And I'm going to give you some of this up front so you understand the metaphorical language that he is speaking with here. These are metaphors that he's going to be talking about here to drive home the point about how he needs to be, Jesus needs to be, the one that we consume completely and are, um, you know, completely devoted to in order for us to understand what spiritual life is. And so he's going to, he's going to build on their Example of Moses and manna. For example, what we're going to read here is he's going to say, listen, the manna that was given was perishable bread from heaven. But the living bread from heaven is just that. It's living. It's not perishable. Then he's going to make the comparison. Your forefathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But anyone can eat the bread of life that I'm talking about and live forever. Speaking about himself. He's going to make the distinction that the manna from heaven is physical food, but the bread of life is spiritual food. And paraphrasing Jesus, okay, paraphrasing him, what he's basically going to end up saying here in the following verses is, just as you partake of physical food to live temporarily, partake of me by faith and you will live forever. 
That's the basic message he's going to be getting across here, although many people won't grasp the message here. And so in essence, what we're going to read here as well, one other little bullet point here, is that the sacrificial life of Jesus is the ultimate satisfaction for the hungry soul. So keep all this in mind as we read through this, because otherwise you're going to get stuck as they did. And you're going to be thinking very literally, and you're going to be thinking manna from heaven, and you're going to miss the greater picture and the spiritual meaning. So here we go now. After he says all this about I'm the bread of life and whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Who believes in me will never be thirsty. You can have eternal life. Then look at verse 41. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say I came down from heaven? Okay, so they they are... They are reducing him to, isn't this just, don't we know his parents, Joseph and Mary? Which they had even that wrong, okay? Joseph was not his biological father, but he was his adoptive dad. And, you know, we know this guy. He's just like us. You know, Joseph and Mary. This is Joseph and Mary's kid. How can he say that I've come down from heaven? Now, Jesus says in verse 43, Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, that's an important truth there, by the way, because when we come to accept Christ, the reason we open our hearts to Christ is because God is already working on our hearts. He's softening us to get to the place of surrender. So that's why Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. This is the work of God's Spirit in our hearts, even before we profess with our lips that Jesus is the Christ. And then he refers to the scriptures. Look at verse 45. He says, it is written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. Okay, again, belief. It's belief. It's not what can you do, it's what can you believe. He who believes has eternal life. And then he repeats this again in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. Verse 51 I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Okay, now at this point, there's an interruption here. Remember, this is church happening in the synagogue of Capernaum. Verse 52, then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is a dishonest question. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Do they honestly think that that's really what he's saying here? This is a dishonest question. Have you ever said something and somebody knew what you meant, but they intentionally twisted your words to try to make you look like a fool? That's what's happening here. Does anybody really think that Jesus is saying, just start gnawing on my arm and then it all it, you're going to get saved here, you're going to live forever. Just start eating on me. No, that's not what he's saying here. And Jesus said to them, but this is what I love, because at this point, when they ask the question, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? If it were me, and, and may, I don't mean to speak for you, but I think maybe you could relate to this. If, and don't anybody try it, okay? So like, you know, but here I am. If I'm saying something, 
and somebody stands up in the middle of the service and says, how in the world can you say that? Pastor Gary, I can't believe you just said that. You honestly believe this? And then you say whatever you thought I said. Now, here would be my immediate reaction. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what I meant. Let me clarify. Jesus doesn't do that. What I love about the way he responds is he doubles down. He goes deeper and it becomes more offensive as you read this. So Jesus doesn't even stop and go, okay, I'm sorry you thought that. Let me just clarify for everybody. No, look at what he says here. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Aren't you glad I put this up here for you before we started reading all that? Don't you read that and go, what? And what? Say what? And you have to imagine if you, if you were the people of the day listening to this in church, you'd be bothered too. Even we read this with the context and wince a little bit, don't we? What are you talking about here? But verse 55, where my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink here. Now, please note, he is speaking metaphorically here. He's not speaking literally. How do we know? Because if you jump down to verse 63, he says, the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are what? Spirit. And they are life. These are spiritual things I'm saying to you. These are not literal things I'm saying to you. You can't gnaw on my flesh and think that that's the answer. But what I'm trying to say to you is you must be consumed with me. You must be surrendered to me and turned to me as the only source of what you need for your hungry soul in the same ways that your forefathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died physically because that was physical food. You need to turn to me spiritually because your whole soul is dependent upon what I can provide for you like no one and nothing else can. Feed on me. Take me in the same way that you are so determined to have three good square meals a day for your physical survival. You need to turn to me and be consumed with me for your very spiritual survival. For eternity's sake. He just doubles down here. And he says something even stronger than what he did before. Now, it's at this point here, folks that there is a major difference between what we believe and what the Roman Catholic Church believes. And I, and I, again, I point this out. I'm not at all trying to bash the Roman Catholic Church. I'm just as a matter of distinction and difference. The Roman Catholic Church actually believes that what Jesus is saying here is somewhat literal in the sense that when they receive the wafer and the wine at Mass, they are taught that the wafer and the wine have a molecular, miraculous change that upon ingesting those items, it does become the actual flesh and the actual blood of Jesus. Because of what is spoken of here, 
the Roman Catholic Church takes it pretty literally. Now, don't send me emails, because I'm going to tell you right now. Every time I mention this, the term is transubstantiation. That is the doctrinal term for what the Roman Catholic Church believes. I get emails from people with Roman Catholic backgrounds, and they say to me, that is not what we believe. And so I will spare you the email by showing to you (laughs) from the Catholic Catechism, okay, the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, Part 2, Section 2, Chapter 1, Article 3, Section 1376, all right? And and again, I'm not saying that to make fun of it. I'm just saying it is in the Catechism. Okay, I'm not making this stuff up, so I'm just going to read it to you. The Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring, because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God, and this Holy Council now declares again that, and I've underlined this part, by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. So this is obviously a major difference. When we partake of the communion elements here at Cornerstone, and this would be the case in really every Protestant church, making the, the assumption that every Protestant church knows what this is about, um, is that the bread and the cup, and in our church we serve grape juice. Uh, if, if you're Episcopalian, you know, you get the real stuff at the Episcopal church. So some of you are Episcoholics, but if, you, if you're here, if you're here, we just give the grape juice, okay? But the bread without yeast is symbolic of the body of our Lord. And the cup is symbolic of the blood of our Lord. But it doesn't actually change in its molecular makeup to miraculously become his blood and his flesh because Jesus is speaking here not literally but he's speaking here metaphorically he's taught he says the words I speak to you are spirit these are spiritual things but is it heavy yeah is it difficult yeah are these things that he is saying here somewhat challenging sure but isn't a fully surrendered life to Jesus that way It's challenging. It can be difficult. You have to count the cost. You have to deny self. You have to take up your cross daily and die to the flesh and follow Christ. And that that discipleship that he requires takes courage, conviction, takes a full, wholehearted devotion. You can't be partially in. You know, Jesus calls us to be his followers, to be his disciples, which means we have to look to him as the only thing and only source of what can completely and ultimately satisfy the hunger of the human soul. And so we have to, in that spiritual sense, feed on him. Like our very being for survival depends on him because it does. So the manna part is a physical illustration, but he being the bread of life is the spiritual application of what it means to be totally consumed with who Jesus is and thereby dying to self, having relationship with him and feeding on him, so to speak, as if your very soul survival depended on that relationship with him, because it does. So he's challenging the people of his day, he's challenging all of us to that relationship with him. 
So when he says all this, now look what happens. Verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? If you have a King James Bible, I think it says who can understand it. It's a better translation of the Greek in the NIV. Who can accept it? They understand it. It's whether or not they want to accept this. They understand that he's speaking here in deep, spiritual, metaphorical terms. The question is, do they want to accept it? And many don't. Because verse 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? In other words, if you have trouble believing all this, one day you're going to see me ascend into heaven. And there's going to be a day of accounting. Okay, these words I speak to you are not fluffy here because I'm about to ascend into heaven eventually after my work is finished and there's going to be a day of accounting. So he says there in verse 63, the spirit gives life. Flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the father has enabled him. And then verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Again, not the 12, but he probably had a couple hundred disciples, followers, who at this point, like this kind of full surrendered life, not in for that. You know, that's not my game. I'm not going to be doing that. And they, they don't follow him and they walk, they, they walk away. And I, I don't know if it's coincidental or whatever, that it just happens to be that when his disciples walk away, many of them, and abandon him, it happens to be John 666. I don't know. Take that for what it is. Verse 67. (laughs) You can read 666 into everything. Um, Pastor Mike Emerson was telling us this week that the code on the back of his credit card is 666. So anyway, now you know who it is. But uh, there you have it. But look here, let's just finish out the chapter. Verse 67, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. So now he turns to the 12, the apostles, his 12 disciples. He says, he sees a bunch of his disciples just peeling off. And he turns to the 12, he says, you guys don't want to leave me too, do you? You guys want to leave? You want to check out? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Don't you love that? Lord, we, there, there's no one else we can turn to besides you. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? And he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. So he's, he basically calls out, without mentioning by name, yeah, a bunch of these disciples have left. Among you 12, you don't want to leave either, do you? Peter speaks up. It says profound things. And then Jesus says, yeah, but truth is one of you is going to leave. Even among the 12, there was one who didn't want to accept what Jesus had to say. But you got to love what Peter says there. He says, you know, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We know that you are the Holy One of God. There is no other alternative. You, Lord Jesus are the one. And he makes this, you know, great. Peter is always this guy who says wonderful things and then dumb things. So, you know, he goes back and forth. But you have to appreciate his bold declaration there. Jesus, we got nowhere else to go. And may we live such lives where we honestly realize 
There's no one else. There's nothing else. All we really got and all we need is Jesus. The Gospel of John is an interesting take on the life of Jesus. He was absolutely a man who experienced things as a human, but he's also God. And so because of that, he's able to do things that are unthinkable to the average human. But it's clear to see through this book that Jesus is anything but average. He's the Son of God. Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus and what he's done for you? Perhaps you'd like some prayer support in what you're learning or growing in. If so, please email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? We'd like to invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. You can find out service times and other information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and even download our mobile app. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in and hearing some things from the book of John that may be life-altering for you. We look forward to you joining us again for our next edition here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know